0: Welcome to Detroit Opera's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scoby And Arthur White. With Detroit Opera.
1: We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a look at our upcoming operatic production of Fountain of Tears, Ina DeMar. We'll delve more deeply into the music of this opera, take a look at the real-life poet and playwright Federico Garcia Lorca, who inspired this story, and welcome a very special guest, Oswaldo Goliav composer of Fountain of Tears, which opens at the Detroit Opera House on April 8th and runs through April 16th. This work, Fountain of Tears, which will be the first opera we have presented in Spanish on the main stage of the Detroit Opera House, has been described as opera meets flamenco because of its folkloric musical traditions of southern Spain, which are also so beautifully infused throughout this score as it reimagines the life of revolutionary poet Federico Garcia Lorca. His political views and sexual orientation led to his violent death during the Spanish Civil War in 1936 in the place called Aina de Mar, or Fountain of Tears. The production powerfully blends dance, projections, and poetry. Uh, Andrea, what can you tell us about Lorca and the characters highlighted in this opera?
0: Yeah, Federico Garcia Lorca is one of the most important Spanish poets and dramatists of the 20th century. Throughout his life, he was an avowed socialist, and his political views, as you mentioned, Arthur, as well as his sexuality, would ultimately cost him his life. Knowing that he was a target, Lorca still decided to remain in Spain during the Spanish Civil War and was eventually captured and killed. Francisco Franco's regime banned his works, and even his mere existence was a taboo subject in Spain, for nearly four decades after his death. In spite of the censorship in his native country, Federico Garcia Lorca's works have had an enormous influence on the poets and authors of Latin America and beyond. He's often credited with being the first author to introduce surrealism into literature, and his lasting impact on poetry continues to this day. So starting at the beginning, uh, Federico Garcia Lorca was born on June 5th, 1898. Uh, He was born in a small town a few miles from Granada. His father, Federico Garcia Rodriguez, was um, a prosperous farmer and landowner, um, as well as a pianist. And his mother, whose name was Vicenta Lorca Romero, was a teacher. So Lorca first studied law at the University of Granada, but he did not complete his studies there. He moved to Madrid to focus on his writing at the Residencia de Estudiantes, which was the first cultural center of Spain, and was really a vibrant hub for both artistic and scientific work and exchange in Europe. So the mission of the Residencia was to complement university education. It encouraged this constant dialogue between science and the arts. Um, It was a place that welcomed avant-garde ideas from abroad. So we have so many notable guests throughout the years at the Residencia de Estudiantes. They included Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, and Igor Stravinsky, among others. And it was here that Lorca joined a group of avant-garde artists who were collectively known as the Generation of 27. And this was a crowd that included uh, Salvador Dali, Luis Buñuel, who would later introduce Lorca to surrealism and greatly influence his writing. So at the age of 20, shortly after his move to Madrid, Lorca's first collection of prose pieces, which was called Impressions and Landscapes, was published, bringing him some acclaim, but not much commercial success. The very next year saw a production of his first full-length play, which was called The Butterfly's Evil Spell. Uh, This was a play in verse. It was centered on this impossible love between a cockroach and a butterfly. And it ran only for performances. It was quickly canceled after scathing reviews and loud booing at the curtain call. And this experience was really crushing for Lorca. So much so that he would later insist that his 1927 play, Mariana Pineda, was his first work for the stage. And this play, Mariana Pineda, opened successfully in Barcelona. It had scenic design and costumes by Salvador Dali. And the play centers on this character who was a real person, Mariana de Pineda Munoz, who was publicly executed for her opposition to Ferdinand VII. And her story became part of the folklore of Granada, where Lorca was born and raised. And this collaboration was also one of many between Lorca and his friend and muse, the Catalan actress Mariana Chirgu, who would go on to perform his works and keep his legacy alive long after Lorca's death. So after this initial foray into the theater, Lorca then went back. He returned to poetry. He published a compilation of poems based on Spanish folklore, and that incorporated elements of Andalusian flamenco and Roma, or gypsy, culture, and its exploration of romantic love and tragedy. And this piece was called Romancero Gitano, or Gypsy Ballads. It would become his best-known work of poetry and would bring him widespread fame and critical praise. Uh, This collection would go on to be republished seven times in Lorca's own lifetime, and it really solidified his connection to the folkloric traditions of Spain, particularly to his native Andalusia. So after this, he spent an unhappy year in New York in 1929. That could be the subject of its own, you know, long paragraph, which I won't go into, but um, some interesting poetry really evolved from this time in New York. But after that, he returned to Spain and he was appointed as director of a touring university theater company called La Baraca, And this was a company that traveled to remote, rural areas throughout Spain, presenting modern, sometimes radical, theatrical interpretations. And Lorca directed some of these, and he also acted in them. And it was during his time with La Baraka that he would write three of his best-known plays, uh, which would become known as the Rural Trilogy. And these plays were Blood Wedding, Yerma, and The House of Bernarda Alba. So his years with La Baraka were artistically incredibly fruitful, but they coincided with political upheaval. 1934 saw widespread labor conflict and a bloody uprising by miners that was suppressed by troops led by General Francisco Franco. And the Spanish Civil War would fully break out within two years. Now at that time, Garcia Lorca left for his hometown in Granada. It's believed that he hoped his brother-in-law, who was the socialist mayor of Granada, would be able to protect him, but ultimately both men were captured by the Nationalist army and executed. The details and reasons for his execution remain shrouded in mystery, largely due to extreme censorship. Following Lorca's death, his books were burned publicly, and Franco's regime placed a general ban on his work, which was not withdrawn until 1953. And in fact, it was only after Franco's death in 1975 that Lorca's own life and death could be openly discussed in Spain. His death made him a martyr and an international symbol of political repression. Obscuring his legacy also means that today. Many people don't recognize Federico García Lorca as a queer poet. An article from The Independent noted that, For decades, Spain's literary establishment, even his own family, refused to acknowledge that the country's best-loved poet, Federico García Lorca, was gay. It wasn't until nearly 45 years after his death that his sexuality was widely acknowledged and accepted. You know, Lorca's innovative poetry and original forms really revolutionized Spanish-language poetry, And in addition to his poems and his works for the stage, Lorca also authored novels and short stories and created paintings, drawings, and musical compositions. And as I close talking about Lorca, you know, there's a quote that I think is just so beautiful. You know, his friend, the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, wrote of him I have never seen grace and genius, a winged heart and a crystalline waterfall come together in anyone else as they did in him, which I just think is just so moving and such a beautiful way to talk about this poet who had uh, an effect on so many and and continues to affect people through his work and through his story today.
1: Fantastic, Andrea. Tell us, when did you first become aware of, of uh, the name Federico Garcia Lorca?
0: Oh, you know, I think the first exposure that I had was in college. You know, I, w- I was a theater student. I majored in musical theater and read a lot of plays and, and saw a lot of plays and musicals. And uh, La Casa de Bernardo Alba was the first script of his that I read and thought it was incredibly moving, and then later read his play Without a Title, which I loved. So much surrealist influence in that play. That is an unfinished piece of Lorca's. He was in the midst of writing it as he was executed, and so I think I read somewhere that only about one-third of it was actually finished, and that's all we have. But what we have of it is brilliant and uh, surreal and just thought-provoking, so I really loved that piece. And then later, just within the last, I'd say, 10 years, I really became aware of his play called Yerma, which I just think is beautiful. The National Theater did kind of an adaptation of it, you know, a more modern adaptation that I think some people love and maybe some people don't love as much, but it really had the effect, I think, of, of drawing a lot more attention to what the original work was. I think there are so many ways for his work to be to be read and interpreted, and I, I loved that we are still doing it. And I love that this opera gives us a chance to have these conversations and to talk about who this poet was, this incredible artist, this incredible revolutionary, really, in his own way. What about you, Arthur? Were you aware of Lorca before Ina DeMarc?
1: I would say probably it was back in the 90s during Pride Month. Uh, and I had read an essay in one of the the papers in Chicago, and I saw, that was my first time being aware of him. And then after that, there was a movie that had come out, and I can't remember uh, what year that was, but it's not long after that. So all of a sudden, it was like Lorca was everywhere. <laughs> and wow. then I began, I was like, ah, I know who that is. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would say probably the 90s start with a, a Pride uh uh, him being highlighted in uh, one of the periodicals in Chicago during Pride month.
0: Wow, amazing. I and I love that that can happen, you know? I mean as I as I mentioned for so long his sexuality was hidden and buried and in his own lifetime, you know, it was um maybe known in his circles, but of course not anything he could speak about openly. So um that's that's actually kind of wonderful to hear that you first became aware of him during a salute to pride. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, I thought
1: maybe we take a moment maybe talk just a bit about the opera, what people are expecting maybe the story, so uh, to say that the opera begins in complete darkness and emerging from that darkness, this mythic world of Federico Garcia Lorca comes into being. The sound of horses on the wind, the endless flow of a fountain of tears, Aina de Mar, the trumpet call of wounded freedom and the aspiration and determination that have been denied generation after generation echo across the hills. We are in Uruguay in April of 1969, The voices of little girls sing the opening ballad of Lorca's play, Mariana Pineda. The actress, Margarita Chigru, we just talked about, uh, looks back across 40 years since she gave the premiere of that daring play by Lorca. We are in the last minutes of her life, and she tries to convey to her brilliant young student, Nuria, the fire, the passion, and the hope of her generation that gave birth to the Spanish Republic. She flashes back to her first meeting with Lorca in a bar in Madrid. Margarita reflects on the parallel fates of Mariana Pineda and Federico. The reverie is shattered by the call of Ramon Ruiz Alonso, who arrested and executed Lorca in August of 1936.
0: Thank you for that, Arthur. You know, one of the things that I first learned about this opera that got me really excited about it was that it is Lorca's story, but told kind of through the eyes and through the experience of his friend and his muse, Margarita Xirgu. You know, she was, of course, an actress. Uh, she was a lesbian. She was a political revolutionary in her own right. She was known as Margarita the Red for her sort of communist-leaning, left-leaning sympathies. And she was exiled and lived out the rest of her life in Uruguay. And so the fact that this story really centers her experience, you know, she was so responsible for keeping the work And the legacy of Lorca alive in all of those years where there was a ban on his work, right? And in Spain, in his native country, he wasn't talked about. His work wasn't talked about. It had been publicly burned, I think, as I mentioned. And Margarita, wherever she was, was still performing these plays and still keeping that story alive. So to know that she is the figure through which we see the story seems really fitting because, in a lot of ways, she is the figure through which we have always seen his story. And I love that she's centered in the opera, I think that's really beautiful.
1: And her final farewell at the end of the opera, where she really, she has great regret that she was not able to convince Lorca to leave as she did to Uruguay. And he stayed. Perhaps uh, he could have been saved if he had left with her. And so her sort of regret about not being able to convince him to come with her is uh, just heartbreaking at the end of the opera.
0: Gorgeous. A beautiful, beautiful moment. I can't wait to hear it sung on stage. We have a powerhouse cast and our our leads, these incredible female singers, are going to blow us all away. I'm just really excited to, to get to opening night and excited to speak with our special guest today, the composer of the opera. I think, uh, Arthur, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about him and uh, give him an introduction.
1: We are so pleased to welcome the composer of Ina DeMar, Fountain of Tears, to this podcast. He is a Grammy Award winning composer and music professor known for his vocal and orchestral works. He hails from La Plata, Argentina from a Jewish family that immigrated to Argentina from Romania. He studied piano and composition as a young man, and he goes on to complete his studies in music in Israel and the United States, where he earns his doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. And in 1991, he joins the faculty of the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. It is here that this young composer, uh, who grew up listening to chamber music, a klezmer, as well as Nuevo Tango of Astor Piazzolla, He begins to make a name for himself as a composer with works like his uh, St. Mark Passion, uh, his clarinet quintet, The Dreams and Prayers of Isaac the Blind, two film scores for Francis Ford Coppola, and of course, two Grammys for his first opera, the opera we're talking about today. Uh, We want to welcome him, uh, Esvaldo Golihoff. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Arthur. Thank you for having me. I guess guess the first question would be an obvious one. Uh, How did you decide for your first opera out of the gate that you would tackle the life of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca?
2: Well, it's a long answer, but I'll try to make it short. In 2002, the Tanglewood Music Center commissioned an opera for me, and I started working on a wholly different project. Uh, That was a cast that consisted of Don Apsho and uh, the female students. And that opera was not cooking really. So in December that year, I decided I just, yeah, I couldn't do it. So through a common friend, I met David Juan, the wonderful librettist. And I said, let's do something. Save me. <laughs> uh, and, and he said, okay, tell me, what do you love? I said, well, I love Lurga. And he says, okay, well, let's do something. Uh, with Lorca, and I said, well, that would be amazing, and and the the only problem is we only have women because it has been cast just for women, and he said, okay, so we'll do it without Lorca. And then I went to the offices of Tanglewood in the Boston Symphony, and I listened to the tapes of the auditions, and there was this wonderful uh, mezzo called Kelly O'Connor, who sounded kind of androgynous. She killed me. And then I look at her picture and she has, she looks like Lorca. I mean, it was crazy, like the eyebrows. I asked her later on, I said, Kelly, how can you, know, O'Connor doesn't sound like Lorca and she says, no, my is Portuguese. So anyways, long story short, I called David and I said, Hey, let's have Lorca be one of the students. She, you know, she looks like him. She sings like, I think would have sung. And he said, okay. So, and then he was kind of faxing me page by page because we were a short on time. It was almost like, like I was an actor in one of these now mini series where you don't know what's going to happen in the next episode, you know? So yeah, that was how it happened.
1: What a wow. great story. I love that. Now we know how the, how that ends up being cast. I was, cause you know, we did a program last week uh, talking about gender and opera. And so this uh-huh. is one of the operas we talked about because it was, uh, Lorca taken up uh, by the role of a mezzo. And so that really clarifies and gives some context as to how that uh, actually came about. Thank you so much for that.
2: You know, it was only practical more than ideological or or philosophical. It was simply practical, but also heartfelt. It was like, wow, she's Lorca. And I love, you know, in the first big area of Ainada Mar, the first big Lorca area, she starts very low, very low, like the the two verses, so to speak. And then when the refrain comes, she goes so high. So I thought, man, that will really be a killer. You know, how people say, wait, who's that? You know, like what is happening here? So yeah.
0: Wow. That that answers the second question I was going to ask, which was kind of about sort of the centering of women in this piece and the idea that we see it through the eyes of Margarita Shirgu and that Lorca, you know, himself is played by you know a female singer. Um, so you've kind of answered the why, but I wonder if you could speak to you know over the years of productions of this opera, what has been the impact? What have you seen audiences respond to, or performers respond to, by having this be such a female-centric piece? Bradley, you know, it's so
2: interesting that. For me, that is very important, and yet I don't remember hearing from the audience. You know, I heard so many things, both amazing and, and not amazing. <laughs> but to me, there is something deep in in an opera that is centered on women because I come from Latin America, which is a place that experienced a lot of male-produced horrors, like the dictatorship in Argentina and so forth, and the, and the most courageous. People were women that were mothers or it's called the desaparecidos, right? Of people that the dictators uh, kidnap and kill. Um, and even in the story of Lorca, even the women that protect him, who are on the other side technically in the Civil War, they are just women. They are the sisters of two guys that were looking for him. So yeah, there is a there is a tremendous courage in the women I knew in my country of birth. Um, and I, I, I mean, all of that, because even some of those mothers were later on kidnapped and killed. So anyways, that's, ah, uh, uh, wait, most importantly, I believe that that dirty war in Argentina was just a child of the civil war in Spain, right? I mean, a lot of great things we inherited and a lot of terrible things we inherited.
1: As well, though, Lorca often wrote uh, about his friend and muse, Margarita Shugru. Uh, some have said that uh, soprano Don Upshaw was your muse. And I'm wondering, how has she influenced your writing or your other work? Oh,
2: man. And it was like, I learned from Don much more than I ever learned in the conservatory, in anywhere. Because, you know, I think that she, why is she such a great talent? I realized because she, everything, that she sings. She's, she is telling a story. You know, there is never, I mean, there are people that have beautiful voices, but it's like, just a beautiful voice. It's like, oh, like, no, not like a peacock, but something like, okay, hear my voice. In Dawn there is this, bit almost need to tell a story with her life, And she has a way of questioning poor choices that is so funny. I mean it's just great. Uh, uh, so she made me realize how many times I was a little careless in the line, in the vocal writing. And and, and I think my vocal writing, uh, my writing in general, got exponentially better thanks to several collaborations that we had, you know, this opera, the Aire, the song cycle, song songs for and her and orchestra. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I owe her a lot. <laughs>
1: That's fantastic.
0: Thank you for that. You know, um, I kind of wonder if you can speak to us about the role of memory in this opera. Um, This is a piece that kind of moves in and through time instead of being chronological. Um, Can you talk about sort of that artistic choice or that framing choice?
2: Yeah, of course. You know, Margarita Shirbu, the protagonist of the opera, the muse of Lorca, who survives him for 33 years, he was like a son for her. She never had children. And she, she felt guilty that she wasn't able to convince him to leave Spain at the beginning of the civil war. And that is in the opera is one of the scenes in the opera. I think that when, as we get older, the memory of the people that we love who had died, is more present, more alive than, than the new people, you know, you know, it's, and I experienced that uh, when well, now I am getting old, but I experienced that. As a child, um, I adored my great-grandmother, and I used to visit her a lot, uh, have my café con leche with her, and and she would always start talking to me, and then at some point she would drift into talking about her beloved son who had died, David was his name, and then she would start kind of talking to him. I would disappear from that reality, in, from the reality of the kitchen. And I didn't mind because I, I was always fascinated by her stories. But I think that is the that is truth in life, right? I mean, we live with the dead <laughs> and, and that's, that's why memory, I, I mean, yes, it's true. But like, factually, it's memory. But to me, it's a reality. It's a reality where the dead and the living coexist, especially the beloved dead.
1: Thank you for that. In. Oswaldo, why did you pick an Arabic name, Aina Damar, as the title for this?
2: Oh, right. Sport? Well, first of all, it sounds great. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, but most importantly, Aina so Damar was a fountain, a kind of a spring outside of Granada, like a, a, just a, like five miles maybe outside of Granada. And it was because it was like a spring, the Arab poets who lived in Andalusia in the Middle Ages, well, called her Aynadamar, Fountain of Tears. The and they wrote many poems to the beauty of that fountain. And then they were expelled, right? All the Arabs and the Jews were expelled from Spain. And then the greatest poet that Spain has produced is killed at that fountain. So that fountain. Witness, creativity, and beauty, and and murder, right? And I I, I I love how it sounds, and also I love that people mysterious people don't know what it means. They have to look if they are interested, you know. <laughs> so yeah,
0: yeah. And I think what a what a beautiful um, sort of nod to just the the many cultures that have inhabited Andalusia, you know, all yeah. of the different yeah. influences that come from the place where Lorca lived and that molded him and that he loved so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talked earlier um, about your librettist of this piece, David Henry Huang. I'm curious about your working relationship with him. What did collaboration look like in the creation of this piece? You know, it was, maybe this, I think it's like a great genius
2: <laughs> because like we had one lunch, we decided on Lorca, then that phone call. Where I said, eh, I think we will have a lot of ca- character, but mostly it was by facts. I said, just run with it. And, and he did. And he created this crazy structure. But it was natural for me. I, I think I told him, you know, David, I'm not so good with, with long speeches. Just try to do it so super- I, I think I'm really good when there are very few words. And I envy the people that are very good with a lot of words and can transition from aria to recitative to dialogue and all of that. I am not. Um, uh, I don't know. I so it was great.
0: As he was sending you kind of these faxes, were you also sharing music with him? I assume things were flowing both directions, oh, or were uh, you really just writing? Oh these yeah, words? no, I, I think
2: I, I I might have. You know, it was so long ago that <laughs> I, I, a lot of what I'm telling you now can just be a lie. So That's I think thing. I I mean. It was, I think he trusted me. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that Lorca aria, you know, from my window, I might have sent it to him. But other than that, he was just surprised and he loved it and, and I love him so much and I'm great.
1: Osvaldo, what should audiences listen for in the music in this opera? We know there's uh, quite a bit of a flamenco sound, but what else is present uh, in the score?
2: You know, I think that this production was a revelation for me because Deborah uncovered all kinds of rhythmic subterranean rivers that, I, that are there, but I had not noticed, right? So rhythm will be really rhythm and dance. I mean, I feel that what she did is perfect new creature that is half dance and half opera, right? And therefore, because everything is in motion all the time, the moments when she stops are all the more power. But yeah, what to listen for? I, I tell you one thing. I tell you, I think a lot in images, sometimes visual, sometimes tactile. But I, 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 in my music, it's not just about the note, notes and rhythm. The, it, it, it comes with the atmosphere, with weight, with the way of bowing. Or, you know, it's a little bit like, like jazz, just to write the notes. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's how the trumpet player will will play those notes, right? But in this particular case, I remembered, okay, so, you know, the city is Granada, right? The, the city of Lorca, but Granada in Spanish, Granada is also pomegranate, the fruit, right? Mm. So I, I felt, okay, it would be amazing if the opera sounds like a floating pomegranate that is bleeding melodies and those make that in slow, like almost low gravity, you know, like, like melodies that are Jewish or gypsy or Arab or flamenco or San Christian, you know, all the, all those melodies that are from that place, right? So that was the image. And I don't know if people will see that floating congranate, but it would be great that people get into those melodies, right?
0: Wow. I love that. What a striking image. <laughs> That's a strong image to have in mind. Yeah. I want to ask you a question, kind of moving away from the opera and just a little bit more uh, about you. What got you into classical music and composition? Was there a great deal of music in your home as you were growing up?
2: Yes, my mother was a pianist and I am the first child of four. So she eventually she quit performing in public, but she, she teaching all her life. But when I was very young, uh, she would still practice many hours. We had a grand piano and I would just play with my toys under the piano, you know. So the piano was like my second womb, so to speak, right? I mean I'm playing I'm playing with my little things, whatever I was playing with, and hearing like better, and I'm but like hearing it, like really hearing it, you know. So i loved it. And then and then I, I realized that I, I like better to improvise than to you know, like every Every piece that I would start learning in the piano, uh, it would give
1: me an idea for another piece. So
2: I guess that's how I, I went into composition.
0: Yeah, I oh. don't know. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Osvaldo, you've served as composer in residence at a wide variety of organizations, yeah. and prestigious ones, Ravinia, L.A. Phil, Chicago Symphony, Carnegie Hall. Um, how have these experiences shaped or expanded your voice as a composer?
2: Yeah, each, each of these places is different, right? I mean... Uh, You know, if you are working with an orchestra like Chicago, well, there is no orchestra like Chicago. If you're working with the Chicago Symphony, it's like, wow, your game goes up, you know, and it's scary. It's really scary because I don't consider myself to be an orchestra composer, even if I write for orchestra. But it was incredible and incredibly humbling and beautiful experience. I just worked with them again last season. At Carnegie Hall, it was amazing because we programmed an entire festival around the music of Latin America, both popular and classical. And that's why this Carnegie Hall, right? I mean, the people there really know how to think, how to plan, and they have really great vision to reach as many people as possible in that great city, right? Yeah, and then the festivals, you know, like Ravinia or or Ojai or... You know, the, the, those are always beautiful. Summer festivals are are great because the the people are in a completely different spiritual place in a summer festival. That when it, you are in winter and you have rehearsal from ten to twelve or whatever, you know, people are more more connected with some other natural time and not clock
0: time. Well, you know, as we come to the end of our time together, our, our time has flown. You know, I really want to ask as we are. Getting ready to open this piece, uh, Fountain of Tears, Ina Demar, what, what would you say to Detroit audiences about the piece? Um, any last thoughts you want to leave with us?
2: Well, those who, who love opera already, I hope that these can sit at the table with the operas that these opera lovers love. And mostly I hope that people that have no idea <laughs> no, but by fluke, they go to, to see and to listen, they come away with, with emotion, with a sense of wonder at, at what is possible in this art form, which is the meeting point of so many other art forms and hopefully even humming a
0: tune or two, that would be great. Well, we would love that and we can't wait for it. <laughs> All right.
1: Thank you so much for being our special guest today. I've learned a, a great deal. Uh, going into this performance uh, on the eighth, Thank you, Arthur, and thank you, Andrea. And thank you, too, to everyone listening to our glimpse into Detroit Opera's production of Fountain of Tears, Ina DeMar, and we hope to see you at the Detroit Opera House for this exciting production, which opens Saturday, April 8th and runs through Sunday, April 16th at the Detroit Opera House.
0: To purchase tickets to Fountain of Tears or to find more information on the production, visit our website at DetroitOpera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A big thank you to Jake Near for his assistance in producing this podcast. And thanks again to you. And we'll see you at the opera. <laughs>